Welcome to Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Here's your host, David Ponraj, founder and CEO of Economic Impact Catalyst. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 1 of Breaking Down Barriers. Today, we'll be speaking with Lanier Richardson, Assistant Professor of Professional Practice and Executive Director at Rutgers Business School and also Chief Executive Officer of the Chicago Trend Corporation. Welcome, Linear. Thank you for having me. So, Linear, if you don't mind setting up the stage with a little bit of your work and the communities you work in. Yes, so I have many roles, but one goal. And that goal is getting capital and creating opportunity for people and in places that other people overlook and undervalue. That's the way I summarize my work. A lot of it has been in ethnic, historically and systemically discriminated neighborhoods and and really focusing on how to make both the case for capital as well as how to create new vehicles that allow people of color to own property and own assets in the communities that... um, you know, that they live in. At Rutgers, I get to teach. I teach an entrepreneurship class called Urban Entrepreneurship and Economic Development. And the central thesis is how to recognize opportunities. And what's really cool about Rutgers is the university allows me to open the doors and make space, equipment, and resources available to a community of entrepreneurs, mostly not students. So every school has a student entrepreneurship program this, our MBA students may work in consulting with uh, local entrepreneurs, but the real focus is how do we build vibrancy in our neighborhoods by supporting entrepreneurs? And then the other half of my uh, time I spend, uh, really, it's, it's we call it uh, publicly engaged scholarship or applied uh, research or, you know, just a practitioner. I run a social enterprise that is uh, been making investments in these neighborhoods and, you know, making the case for capital for the entrepreneurs and really articulating and advocating for different ways of underwriting and analyzing and changing the system so that there is more capital available for entrepreneurs, particularly entrepreneurs of color. I am so excited to get into this topic further. However, I want to first ask you about your background. I saw that you won Young Entrepreneur of the Year, when you started out your career, can you give us some backstory on why this work matters to you? Yeah, so I started this work as a uh, young, I went to law school and I uh, became an attorney at a big bank. That's now J.P. Morgan Chase. It was something else then. And every day, the bank, the, the bank law department had 90 lawyers and our job was the bank was making $100 million loans to big companies. It wasn't until I got an opportunity to do a pro bono assignment where the bank was making a $100,000 loan to like a local entrepreneur who was buying his building that the work had meaning. I mean, literally on the $100 million loan, I'd fall asleep at my desk every day, every afternoon. So this was the same loan documents and promissory note and, you know, mortgage. Uh, but it was a $100,000 loan as opposed to a $100 million loan. But the work had meaning because it was in communities that I connected with. And that's when I first started to see my role as this sort of connector between community, 
big corporate government, how to get deals done. I left the bank about two years later and started to work for an affordable housing developer who was building homes in neighborhoods. And during that time, I managed to save up money. I was 27, 28 years old, and I'd saved about $70,000. And I said, you know what? I'm going to try this myself. And it was a, never a right time to start a business. My, you know, I was, my wife was at the time was pregnant with my first son, but I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so I launched my business building homes, same way, same passion about neighborhoods and neighborhoods that were overlooked or for some reason disinvested in. And as an entrepreneur, I developed, built and sold in some years, more than a hundred single family homes uh, in neighborhoods. And one of those years where I built more than a hundred, I was named a young entrepreneur of the year by the SBA. And I always tell people as an entrepreneur, I've experienced all the highs and lows. I have battle scars and war wounds. Uh, I've been on the cover of Cranes in the newspaper, and I've been at the threshold of the bankruptcy court, right? I made payroll for 26 employees, and there was one time where I missed payroll, right? And that all of those entrepreneurial lessons uh, both, you know, brought passion to the work that I do today and informed my sensitivity uh, and passion for advocating for entrepreneurs getting the resources they need to survive and grow. You know exactly what it is to be an entrepreneur because there's nothing like missing payroll. And, <laughs> and, and really, sometimes it has nothing to do with the health of your business. As a small business, having cash flow to pay payroll is different than having 100 contracts. Exactly, exactly. That actually speaks to you know, the heart of what we want to talk today about capital access and why it is so hard for people of color and other underrepresented communities to be able to get capital, even when they have healthy businesses, even when they are a proven entrepreneur, but because they don't have a great credit record or because they don't know the personal banker or they don't have a personal relationship or they don't have a family and friends and family around they can lean on. It becomes exponentially harder because you're starting much further behind than a lot of other people in the community. I want to talk to you about that, about capital access. But before that, I want to kind of talk about this overarching problem we're trying to solve. And I, the moment I use the word, you're going to say that's the exact problem you're solving, even in more important ways than we are, which is wealth creation. Yes. And owning a home is one of the biggest ways in which you can create wealth in this community today. Can, we, can you explain to us and to our audience this, this fundamental concept of wealth creation? Because every time we try to talk about you know, narrowing the gap, we only see that it's getting broader. Like I was reading somewhere that COVID actually made the richest people even richer. Correct. How can we start affecting wealth creation in our communities? You probably know it better than anybody else. And you probably, uh, you know, are trying to tackle this problem every day. Yes, I am. And, you know, right after um, the murder of George Floyd, you know, all of us were reflecting on how could and should the world be different? Um, and there was civil unrest in some of the communities where I was actively working, both as an advocate as well as, you know, providing capital to entrepreneurs working in that community. And what I remember seeing is there was, you know, uh, looting in some of the stores. Um, and what was fascinating to me was I started to realize that People patronized places, but they had no ownership interests. 
And it hit me like an epiphany one morning that wealth is created by owning assets, assets that generate revenue and assets that hopefully appreciate over time. Maybe those assets have tax advantages. Maybe those assets can be passed along, right? Everyone's talking about generational wealth. So if we are going to close the racial wealth gap, we are going to address systemic wealth gaps. We have to help more people who have not traditionally had access to opportunity, capital, business investment opportunities, certainly business ownership opportunities. We have to intentionally structure transactions, intentionally find new ways of underwriting and evaluating risk so that we help more people of color. That's what I spend my day on every day. That's what I think about to help more people of color own assets, businesses, real estate, stock, intellectual property, licenses, right? And so if we're not, and that's entrepreneurship, right? So if we're not helping ownership of assets, that's why the wealth gap continues to grow, right? The the top 1% own assets. They own stock and they own businesses and they own, you know, Jeff Bezos with Amazon, you know, you can see why, right? Warren Buffett, they, there's appreciation. There's tax benefits, right? There's current income and there's you know, appreciation potential. That's my summary. Wealth is created by owning assets that generate revenue and that appreciate over time. And so if we're not helping people own assets, we're not doing wealth creation. How do we help people get assets? I know that that's such a far removed question because in a lot of cases, there, there are so many other systemic problems uh, around social justice and yeah. uh, even barriers to simple things like getting a home loan. Like, how do you get on this journey? And uh, we, as a company, we focus primarily on entrepreneurship and we believe that that is the best path to creating yeah. empowerment, uh, creating long-term value for your families and your communities. But even entrepreneurship is such a hard path. I mean, you yeah. know this, you've done this before, you know, you have to have every star aligned. It's not about, you know, how good you are as an entrepreneur. It doesn't matter how hard you hustle. There needs to be market timing. There needs to be demand. There needs to be really good cash flow. There needs to be the ability to raise capital. Where do you start? So I think it's not, uh, it's not revolutionary, it's evolutionary. It's not either or, 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 and it's, you know, it's, it's and it's not either or it's and, right? So uh, I used to always tell people I was happy when I ran the Economic Development Corporation in Newark, New Jersey, that I was responsible for economic development, not education, not crime, right? Those are hard, right? You know, so um, coming up with innovation and strategy and, 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 and you know, analyzing and ad advocating for deals that will support entrepreneurs and support community revitalization, to me, that's easy compared to, you know, some of the you know, what do we do about educational systems? And, you know, and, um, but here's my point, whether it's micro entrepreneurship, you know, we have a professor that uh, is doing some really creative work at Rutgers around formerly incarcerated individuals and entrepreneurs. That is, um, summarizes research in, you know, in 30 seconds and probably butchering it at the same time. His theory is that when people um, leave the penal system. Uh, there's a big focus on recidivism rate going back and forth. And that 
people um, will not recidivate if they have a, an identity. Uh, yeah, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Christian. Um, his thesis is I'm an entrepreneur could also be part of that. And so giving people both an entrepreneurial mindset and a training. And I've often thought that if someone could figure out how to generate, I don't know what the number is, 45, 55, somewhere between 40 and $60,000 a year of income as an entrepreneur, even with a formerly, even a formerly incarcerated individual, that they'd have a better chance of, they, they got this identity, I'm an entrepreneur, and I can legitimately, whether it's Uber driver or a barbershop or some kind of whatever, they can figure out an entrepreneurial strategy that allows them to be self-employed. So, and entrepreneurship, as you know, is can be self-employment, gigging, moonlighting, tech startup, acquisition, high growth, uh, consumer facing. And again, my mother used to say it's not either or, it's just not better or worse, it's just different. So this guy's gonna operate the $60,000 long cutting business a year of annual revenue. This person is going to launch a startup that we hope will be $60 million of revenue at some point or have a unicorn exit. And our role as economic developers is to figure out how to help them both. And my approach is very deal oriented, right? I'm trying to understand what are you trying to accomplish as an entrepreneur? Where my economic development role, is there a place where we're trying to get more entrepreneurship to happen? Or, you know, many of our economic development officials face criticism, like, oh, you're focused only on downtown, not focused in the neighborhood. So I spent a lot of time in my advisory work and consulting is helping economic development officials really think about how to create strategies, again, around people and around places that higher crime area, lower educational outputs, you know, all of the disparities that we know are exist. All right, let's do something that is strategic, that addresses those disparities. That's that's the nature of the work. I have a story to add to your story about recidivism rate. There's a yes. study out of St. Paul, Minneapolis, because St. Paul, Minneapolis, as you can imagine, is one of the highest incarcerated rates in the country, Minnesota okay. in general. They found that when there was a program, this was actually in workforce development, but could be also entrepreneurship. When there was a program for returning citizens, recidivism rate dropped by two thirds. That yeah. same thing about identity, right? When when there is a program they can come into, when there is some kind of uh, employment available for them that can distract them from uh, going back to prison, it drops significantly. And yeah. these are very kind of intentional ways of looking at solutions versus simply saying, we've got programs for everyone. It usually excludes the people you're trying to serve, right? There's no intentionality around there. And data can be so powerful in kind of helping uh, align investments with outcomes uh, like these. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. I want to kind of shift uh, a little bit to asking you uh, a few more of a kind of very direct questions around sure. wealth creation and capital access to kind of get your uh, thoughts on this. We're talked about having a friends and family round or having um, a banking relationship, uh, et cetera, as a way in which different communities uh, that are not people of color are able to get ahead a lot faster because when you want to start a business, you've got the seed round you can rely on from your friends and family. And legitimate 
successful entrepreneurs, when they are trying to start a business and it's a person of color, it is significantly harder to raise the capital. And one of the reasons is because when you look at traditional lending, they're looking at repay, repayability. They're looking at if I give you the money, what, what markers are there that you will give me my money back? And I want to challenge that assumption that repayability is not a good indication for economic investment because if you're not investing in entrepreneurship, you are then reinvesting in policing the streets or paying for housing or paying for all the other things. Should we have this high of a mark for repayability saying that it's actually probably better to even allow some defaults on loans because a lot of that money is spent by the entrepreneur in the community? Is that the right way to look at lending? Because traditionally, even a 7A loan, a SBA 7A loan requires profitability to be able to get it. I mean, where is that breaking point for us to say, wait a second, let's have some entrepreneurs, even if they burn through the money, they're at least putting that money into the economy. Yes. The way I think about it is that is there, there are entities each playing a different role. So there's a role for the private sector, private equity firm. And there's a role for the big commercial bank. And there's a role for the community development financial institution. And there's a role for you know philanthropy and government. I believe the mandate right now for economic developers are, is to solve the issues that you allude to. The banks, you know, they're set up to have a, one or two or three percent default rate at most, right? Maybe the CDFI lenders can have a four or five percent default rate. But economic developers have tools and resources, in many instances targeted to place, that could be used to provide credit enhancement, to provide the early stage capital that the traditional bank or venture capital will not, to form new models and systems. So I'll give you an example. So uh, the role of government, philanthropy, and private sector, but individuals. So uh, in Newark, New Jersey, where I, my office is at Rutgers Business School, there was a big announcement about a new accelerator and venture capital firm opening in Newark that had you know goals of we're going to invest in Newark entrepreneurs. We're going to bring companies to Newark. You know, a really uh, celebrated entrepreneur and uh, big is the largest corporation in uh, Newark, sort of aligning around, we're going to create this new fund. They do. A year later, I started to, probably, I don't know, without exaggerating, probably got six or seven calls. Hey, we're not getting in. Hey, we're not getting opportunity. Nobody of color has been funded. And so we created this program. We called it a pre-accelerator. We, we try to find entrepreneurs that we thought were interesting to try to help them. And as it related to capital, and I really want to do this in other communities, we formed something called the Black and Latinx Angel Investment Fund of New Jersey. And it is initially 11 individuals, my wife and I, another Rutgers alumni, the head of Queen Latifah's accountant, I joke around. It's just like average people that agreed to invest $50,000 of our own money. It was in the way of structure is you write a check for 10%, $5,000. And you start hearing pitches. Every six weeks, we hear a presentation. 
we then decide we're going to vote for due diligence, do more due diligence. And then after that due diligence, we can uh, decline or invest as a group. So that was private sector. We got the university to sponsor it. We got a grant from the Cerner Foundation. We got a grant that paid all paid for professional fund managers that paid for our you know analyses. We had a grant from EDA, federal EDA, $300,000 that allows us to do investor education and training and outreach and entrepreneurial identification. So all of a sudden, you know, that Steve Case in his book wrote about the importance of the first hundred or $200,000. For us with people of color, it's the first fifty dollars or $100,000. And I know this intimately. When I started in my business, I told you I had $70,000 of my own money. And everyone, even then, this is now 25 years ago, people talked about, you got to do the friends and family round. You got to do your friends and family round. And so I went around to my friends and family. And they were young professionals, student loans. I had aunts and uncles that had been on their jobs for a while, but they didn't want to pull $20,000 out of their 401k. They just, they didn't have the excess, right? And so while they were supportive, I always say I got a round of applause. I didn't get much capital, but in my friends and family. And and what I remember was, even if I was saying, hey, I think you'll make 20% return, it they just wasn't set up to do it, right? There wasn't disposable capital. You know, when we tell our angel investment folks, we all are doing our screening. We hope to, you know, find opportunity. Seven of these might be wrong. Three of these are going to be right. My friends and family at the time didn't have the wherewithal to know that they were wrong, right? But what we created now is a system. Individuals with a private, um, both a, a financial goal, we're trying to make a return, but also with a sensitivity to understanding opportunities and hearing, seeing presentations from entrepreneurs of color that we could invest in. And we leverage that with the university, with the government you know, with philanthropy. And I just believe economic developers with intention, just as they create strategies that will attract the big businesses, just as they created uh, tax abatements and other financial incentives, we, and I'm seeing this, that economic developers need to be making the case to, whether it's to their elected officials, that some portion of their capital has to be risk tolerant to support entrepreneurship development in their communities. And so whether it's patient capital funds or angel funds or credit enhancement, you know, we're we're working on this thing now where um, we had state support to research, could crowdfunding really help entrepreneurs of color? And we got a, a great bank, Santander Bank, to give us a grant to launch a inaugural program that will help 10 entrepreneurs do the crowdfunding video, do the investment analysis, create the, you know, create the marketing and outreach, and even provide the first, you know, five or $10,000 on their first day, right? That is intentional. Should economic development be giving entrepreneurs the first $5,000? Historically, they will say no. Should economic development really be working shoulder to shoulder, helping entrepreneurs create financial analyses and the, um, you know, the pro forma, should economic development be paying for entrepreneurship, entrepreneurs to do videos that will tell their story or help strategically position them? 
traditionally, some of those answers have been no. Today, if we really want entrepreneurship and we want inclusive entrepreneurship, that's what we have to do. Do you think that change is coming? Do you feel like entrepreneurship support organizations and economic developers get it? Or do you think that your story and your example is just an anomaly when it comes to entrepreneurship? Is there enough ROI either through press, right? Because economic developers love press uh, or the government loves press or whatever the many outcomes we look at. Is there enough stated ROI to pursue this nationally? Well, I'm feeling like there there's good momentum, right? Uh, we, you know, IEDC, International Economic Development Council, is doing great work around entrepreneurship-led economic development. Um, I'm seeing more and more of the large philanthropic organizations supporting entrepreneurship programs, Rockefeller Foundation, Serna Foundation, I mentioned. The banks in their CRA lending are supporting entrepreneurship capacity building. But in addition to capacity building, I'm starting to see people think new ways about making access to capital available. So, you know, there's no future in being a pessimist, right? So I'm optimistic. I see a small, a lot of small initiatives. I see, you know, big announcements from corporations about new capital being available for entrepreneurs or black female entrepreneurs. Goldman Sachs has a great, uh, you know, great program. So I'm encouraged. You know, we need some success stories. Um, and whether or not there's enough ROI, again, when I worked for Mayor Cory Booker in Newark, we celebrated the local restaurant or ice cream store opening with the same level of enthusiasm and vigor as we did the opening of a new Panasonic's headquarters. And that's, it felt, it actually, it, those ribbon cuttings even feel better. Yeah, there's a person and the capital was needed and you're tasting ice cream and you're meeting the entrepreneur's son or wife or mother, right? You know, mom's here. Hey, mom, aren't you proud of your son? We're proud to have him as an entrepreneur in our city, right? The mayor feels that connection. And the citizens actually, you know, they elect, you know, the people electing them, they want to see that. They're sure we get it. Jobs, big company, big business attraction, but micro business attraction and business retention activities look and feel more satisfying to the taxpayers than, you know, we got the next, you know, big company and we gave them, you know, $30 million of tax incentives, right? We loaned this entrepreneur $200,000 to buy this building. And this is the person you know who supports the Little League team, right, who is on the planning commission. That's where our economic developers have to figure out how to continue to tell those stories uh, because I think they will get more capital and more support. By the way, we are huge believers that entrepreneurship is the sure path to empowerment. Uh, And the, the question about ROI, I'm so glad to hear that a lot of government officials and philanthropy and corporations see that, right? That supporting entrepreneurship actually benefits the entire community more than just the money because uh, there are studies that have shown that if you remove the local watering hole, there is more impact than just the loss of the economic dollar. You're also affecting the 
the happiness of the community. Yeah, quality of life. Yeah, yeah, quality of life. The social capital is being lost and the social impact is worse than the loss of the economic impact because that's where the community came together and yeah. losing that local bar. Literally at our Rutgers Center for Urban Entrepreneurship, we focused on the streets called Halsey Street in Newark where there's the local Black-owned coffee shop. There's a, a entrepreneur who operates a, a restaurant uh, that's sort of Mediterranean and kosher food, right? There's the bar, and there's a desire to have more bars. And, you know, again, being able to walk and have a meal helps our students, helps us attracting other corporations, helps people feel like, hey, there's something here, right? The streets don't roll up at 5 p.m. and there's nothing to do or eat or have a dinner. And so that, you know, there's the interesting little boutiques or galleries. Again, that's quality of life, as well as that activity is, you know, eyes on the streets and, you know, makes you feel safer. And, uh, you know, it's the art that's on the street that, and our street in Newark Halsey, for us, it connected the student community at Rutgers and NJIT and other universities right there. It connected the business community, Prudential and Panasonic and uh, the public utility is right there, but also the community at large, right? All felt like they could, you know, find food and, and activity and entertainment, you know, on that street. So creating strategies that allow the business community, academic community, and the community community, the residents who made the place special uh, historically, you know, that's that's economic development work. And that's uh and that's entrepreneurship. That's supporting entrepreneurs. I'm gonna ask you one more question around this, and then we'll kind of switch topics, but looking at access to capital. In a lot of cases, when entrepreneurs like returning citizens or others from disadvantaged communities uh, look to access capital, sometimes the the PowerPoint you're looking for or that business plan or the way to articulate go-to-market strategy, they might not be starting at the same place. They have the same passion, the same hustle, even a brilliant idea, but there's a huge gap to getting access to this capital, even when it's readily available through this angel fund, et cetera, because they still have, they have to still fulfill the requirements of getting that capital. Is there another way to look at capital, which is this alternate access to capital that can look at markers like, for example, good business sense. Do they have QuickBooks? Do they have an accountant? Have they done this work before or they're willing to go through an educational program because we found that when you pair education with a grant like even a six-week cohort-based education the success rate of that ten thousand dollars is so much higher because they've understood the the fundamental mechanics which everybody's taught nobody's born as an entrepreneur unless you're born in a very wealthy family we've all learned entrepreneurship by making the mistakes like the first time you miss payroll you've got all those markers next time you know, you've tried to get that capital at the cash a lot sooner, right? You're re-looking at your balance sheet, your PL, making sure that, you know, is there any place I can cut costs, things like that. But a lot of entrepreneurs don't start there, uh, especially in traditionally marginalized communities. The challenge to getting to the starting line exists, right? If the, even if the starting line is super easy access to, ca- to cash and to capital. What do we do about making this truly, as you said, inclusive, where we're able to think about alternate ways in which you can understand creditworthiness or repayability or even 
not repayable, but NSF gives out a lot of money for ideas. SBIR gives a lot of ideas. People are throwing money at these communities, but again, who you know matters when you get SBIR or NSF. So they again lose out on all these this free money. How do we bring them along? Yeah, I think that's the opportunity for economic developers. It's the work we do at Rutgers at other universities. You know, they're nonprofit community development organizations. Again, helping people make the case for capital. I do believe, you know, businesses narrative and the numbers. So you got to be able to tell the story. Here's what I'm trying to do. Here's my background. Here's why I'm passionate about this. Here's the niche that I see. And here's how I ultimately expect to solve a problem. At the same time, you got to be able to say, here's the revenue I think I will generate based on these metrics, X number of customers paying X number of dollars per day, per unit, whatever. Here's my expenses. And here's what I believe to be a profit. When I teach my class at Rutgers Business School and my MBA students, first day, I define entrepreneurship for them as someone that's taking a risk and solving a problem with the hope of making a profit, right? So that thought of here's who I am, here's the business solution, here's my model, and I hope to make a profit because if there's no profit, I always say you'll run out of the passion at some point, right? So you're just like, oh, it's too hard and I got to think about it all the time and I'm always on and I'm not making any money, right? It's not, it doesn't have to be day one or even year one. We know some businesses, but you have to start with the hope of making a profit. And the sooner you make a profit, the more fun and more opportunity you have to talk to bankers and investors and, 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 and others, right? So this thought of helping people make the case whether it's short form, you know, when I was in school, you had to do these long form business plans, 20, whether it's, you know, three PowerPoint slides, right? Here's how I make money. Here's my customer. Here's where I'm going. Here's one page of my pro forma. It doesn't have to be, you know, exhaustive. It just has to be understood, right? And it has to be rational, right? That I'm going to invest, you know, whatever, $10,000 into piece of equipment or inventory or, you know, software or something to be able to provide my goods or services. Here's how I'm going to market to get comp clients. I already have someone sort of lined up. Here's what I'm going to charge them. Here's my cost. Here's what I think I'll ultimately make as a profit. And ideally, if it's uh, a loan, here's how I'll be able to repay the loan with some kind of debt coverage service ratio bump. So some of that, you know, the fundamentals of business are just that fundamental. They're not necessarily discriminatory. They are, you know, I've heard somebody, I was on a call once, someone said, well, the five C's of credit are discriminatory. Well, maybe, right? But, you know, we can decide how to address and how to change the systems in a way that make entrepreneurship and capital access more inclusive. That's our role. I, I think that's the clarion call for economic developers right now, right? Again, after the big Amazon, you know, location to HQ decision announcement that all everybody competed with is a big beauty contest. I think we can think about entrepreneurs at, at Rutgers. Last thing I'll say about work at Rutgers. We, we've been in existence, our Center for Urban Entrepreneurship and Economic Development since 2008. And 
we set a goal of helping entrepreneurs get above a million dollars a year in annual recurring revenue. A million dollars a year is not the end all be all. It's a threshold. It's typically where maybe the owner can hire one or two people or more. Uh, You can finally talk to a bank. You know, there's enough revenue. You know, you have customer validation, that kind of stuff. And so right now we have, you know, at last count, over 240. Yeah, hopefully we're at 300 now, right? And our little center is four of us. And, you know, we leverage some academic faculty in their research. But our goal is to get a thousand entrepreneurs generate more than a million dollars a year of annual recurring revenue. Some at 1.01 million, some at 10 million. But what I always get excited about is one day on my iPhone, I put up the calculator and I was like, okay, a thousand times a million is a billion. Could our little center have a billion dollars of economic impact? Right. But just helping a thousand entrepreneurs in around our city, in our region, maybe even around the country, especially people of color. 70% of the entrepreneurs we support are entrepreneurs of color, over 60% are women. Could we help diverse entrepreneurs? A thousand? That's my dream. Right. That's what, uh, you know, they'll say our little center has a billion dollars of economic impact. And we celebrate the success of those entrepreneurs and we use our resources to help them overcome problems and, you know, uh, you know, address all these things, credit, relationships, access to contracts, getting paid faster. All those are real issues. Wow. That's an amazing goal to have a billion dollars of impact. That That's amazing. All right. Last two questions for you. This can be a short or a long answer. Are we closing the wealth gap? Is the wealth gap getting smaller? So I don't think so because the gap between the asset owners and the, you know, so the common guy is so wide. And again, assets generate revenue and they keep appreciating, right? This return on investment. And um, I think there's a recognition of that fact. So, you know, am I, again, I always look for something to be encouraged about. There's recognition of the fact that there's this big gap. And I do hear announcements and believe that there is energy and effort around closing the, uh, closing the, the, the wealth gap. Again, it, it didn't, we didn't get here in one year or five years. I don't think we'll solve it in one year or five years either. But I do feel like there's recognition and there's efforts to, to, to address the problem. To know the problem is the starting point and to acknowledge that there is a problem. Exactly. Exactly. So last question, what are you working on at Rutgers or with your uh, Trend Corporation or at IEDC that you want to share about that's exciting for 2022? Yeah. So um, I mentioned our growing our angel investment fund. We're excited. We think we're about to announce one of the big banks that will invest alongside. So imagine we now have big corporate investing along individuals in our angel fund, and that we'll continue to grow that. I'm really excited about that. And I'm excited about the possibility of helping other communities start angel funds, angel investment funds. We have to, we not know how now, where the grant is, how do you structure it? How do you get a fund manager? How do you recruit people? So I want to expand that word. Uh, and in my Chicago trend business, last year we bought 
four small community shopping centers. Uh, don't think Best Buy and West Elm and you know Cheesecake Factory and Macy's. We have the center that has Dunkin' Donuts and the uh, Walgreens or Rite Aid, or you know, 30% of our tenancy are healthcare tenants. But the cool thing is we have 130 plus, I think maybe 140 black local and small impact investors who have an ownership stake in those properties. So not just my company own, my company owns 51% of them. But what's really cool is people patronize and protect a place that they have, if it's $1,000 or $5,000, right? That they tell their kids, I own that, right? So we're branding this theme of we own this. Right? We doesn't just doesn't mean you and I, if we were both investors, it would be like, hey, I went to prom with David or I, you know, I, I, I knew him, he's in my fraternity or, you know, that was my cousin or my uncle, right? My grandson, right? We have an ownership stake in that whole uh, mindset change about ownership and understand what it means to get a K-1 and how the, the financial decisions are made and ultimately that people will make money. And again, you invest a thousand dollars, you're not going to make a million, but if you invest a thousand dollars every year, you're going to get a little check for eight, nine percent, eight hundred bucks. At some point when we, we, you know, refinance or sell the asset, maybe you'll get five or six thousand dollars, you know, and, and if it was ten thousand, whatever, right? So the thought of owning in the generational impacts, both direct financial, but also mindset. I mean, I'm an entrepreneur because my dad was an entrepreneur, right? We cleaned up the, we owned the bar. We cleaned up the parking lot. We stocked the beer coolers. You know, if the DJ didn't show up, I was guest DJ, right? Those lessons, you know, I saw him hire bartenders and security guards and have to let people go. Those lessons of, what you know, having to repair the roof or the parking lot, right? Those lessons, those are. I want more people to have those experience, both as owners, whether it's directly I'm owner operator or whether I'm an owner investor. What does that mean? Wow. So I'm really excited about our ownership work. We call it inclusive ownership of commercial property. Very excited about that work as well. So you're actually directly moving people to owning assets, even if it's a small portion of it. Even if it's a small portion. We have, uh, again, the last project we did, we bought a $6 million sort of infamous community shopping center in the hood, right? And uh, or and that had been not invested in, uh, but was cash flowing. And the thought was, what if local folks had an ownership stake? The parent down the street, the charter school parent, is a charter school right next door to this shopping center. And now a couple of the parents, we had a university club of real estate students that have a $5,000 stake, right? So um, again, you know, time will tell, but it's about wealth creation. It's about community development. It's role modeling. Yeah. Right? Um, you control who gets hired. We've hired people of color to be property managers and leasing agents, right? To do the contracting, right? I always tell people, which I want to make sure, I'm so happy I thought about this before we conclude it, that intentionally inclusive does not mean exclusive. So the fact that we're intentionally trying to create opportunities for people of color doesn't mean that we're saying, you know, white people need not apply or cannot invest. Intentionally inclusive does not mean exclusive. 
it means creating ways to say there's opportunity for you. Here's some extra effort around outreach and education, right? That is not just a private placement memo, memo with 25 people we know privately. That is a bigger opportunity to learn and, and to decide if this is something you want to participate in. Absolutely. I, my, my favorite story about inclusive thought process is the curb cut effect. Uh, I, mean, I don't know if you've heard of it. So it was in Stanford. No, tell me. Yeah. So in, uh, in the 60s, the, the pavements on the sides of the roads were not, did not have the slope for people in wheelchairs to go and cross the street. So what they would have to do is lift the wheelchair so their friends would have to lift them. And uh, one of those uh, wheelchair people finally got so frustrated that they poured cement uh, to make that slope. And they were arrested for it because they were defaming public property. And then finally people realized that those slopes actually helped disabled people uh, have better access to the roadways. A recent study found that nine out of 10 people who use the sidewalk use the curb cut. Bicyclists, people with dogs, people with kids. So when you make it accessible for the lowest common denominator, you're actually making it accessible for everyone. You're not taking money away from the rest of the community to give to a specific group. By making it accessible for that lowest common denominator, actually everybody else benefits. And people always think it's either or, that if you're giving to this one community, you're taking away from another, but you're not. And I love to think of inclusivity that way, just like you said, it's not exclusive. It actually makes it more people can participate, not taking away from any one group. I agree. I love that. So uh, in closing. Mic drop moment. That's a mic drop moment. <laughs> it's my favorite study and, and it's nothing original, you know, by talking to people like you, just soaking all of that wisdom in. So in, in closing, Lanier, how can people follow your work? Because we get a lot of questions back on how can they follow you on LinkedIn or uh, your work, uh, especially with this exciting fun that you have going on, people want to follow along. Yes. So the easiest way I've found is LinkedIn. I mean, I have the Rutgers Center for Urban Entrepreneurship and Economic Development. We call it CUED, C-U-E-E-D. Obviously Googleable. Chicago Trend, obviously Googleable. But direct, you know, LinkedIn has been a great tool for as a relationship uh, management tool, an initial contact tool. I probably get a couple emails every day saying, can we talk? Can we get together? And, you know, to the extent that I can, you know, I, I make, make time and opportunity. And I've also created opportunities through LinkedIn as well. Just people saying, hey, we want to form an angel fund in our community. We got an old shopping center in our community that we love to see community ownership and maybe it get revitalized. Reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'd love to be helpful. And I appreciate the opportunity to say that. Absolutely. Well, Thank you so much for being here today. It's such a fascinating conversation. And this is a conversation we should probably have over coffee or beer. could take hours. Uh, but yeah. uh, thank you for distilling it for us. And uh, we're going to really benefit from all of the wisdom you've given us today. Thank you for helping this field of inclusive entrepreneurship, uh, field of uh, capital access. And we hope to have you back again. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Special thanks to our renowned guests for joining us. You can find show notes, more episodes, send us ideas, and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, economicimpactcatalyst.com. Breaking Down Barriers is a presentation of Economic Impact Catalyst 
and produced by Jody McLean and edited by Lauren Bernard. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Breaking Down Barriers, available for free wherever you listen to your podcasts.